Chapter 1 of Grace Harlow with the American Army on the Rhine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter 1 On the March to the Rhine. Here is where we take our load observed Grace Harlow, backing her car up to the door of a peasant cottage. Never was a truer word spoken, agreed J. Elfrida Briggs. Chad of her own sweet self is considerable of a load. Miss Briggs reached back and threw open the door of the army automobile to be ready for their passenger who had not yet appeared. Baggage, some would characterise her, added the girl. She is our superior, Elfrida, reminded Grace. One always must preserve a certain respect for one's superior, else discipline in the army would quickly go to pieces. While Mrs. Smythe plainly is not all that we wish she were, she is our superior officer whom we must both respect and obey. Ever meet her? questioned Elfrida. Once. I was not favourably impressed with her, though I did not see enough of her to form an opinion worth while. That she was fat and rather fair, I recall quite distinctly. Know anything about her, Grace? Nothing beyond the fact that she is said to be the wife of a wealthy Chicago meatpacker, and that Mrs. Meatpacker wishes everyone to know that she is a rich woman and an influential one. She must be to get here, Grace. What I cannot understand is how she ever got into army welfare work, especially how she came to be assigned to join out with the American Third Army's march to the Rhine. Perhaps influence, perhaps her money, perhaps a little of both, nodded Grace. You know as much about it as I do. And that much, little as it is, is too much, declared J. Elfrida Briggs. I should characterise her as an inordinately vain woman, one of the newly rich, who, clothed with a little authority, would be a mighty uncomfortable companion. The girls at the hospital who have worked under her say she is a regular martinet. How does it come that she has been unloaded on us? I'm sure I do not know J. Elfrida. I do not even know with whom she came through last night when we started out on our march to the Rhine. I was ordered to pick her up and take her through in our automobile today, together with two other women who accompany her. However, this march to the River Rhine having only just begun, we haven't yet settled down to a routine. Neither has the enemy, observed Elfrida. Grace nodded reflectively. He has signed the armistice, but knowing the Hun as I do, I know that if he thinks he can safely do so, he will play a scurvy trick on us. I hardly think we shall be attacked, however, but J. Elfrida, take my word for it, there are many deep and dark Hun plots being hatched in this victorious army at this very moment, she declared. What do you mean? Hun treachery, Elfrida. You know something, Grace Harlow? No, not in the way you mean. I know the animal and its ways, that's all. 
Look at that line of observation balloons of ours floating in the sky to our rear and moving forward as we move forward. Know what they are doing? Watching the Boches. Exactly. Were the Bosch a worthy foe, a foe who would respect his agreements, the need for watching him would not exist. But a foe who has broken his word, his bond, and all the Ten Commandments is not to be trusted. I suppose I shouldn't feel that way, but I have lived at the front for many months, Alfreda, and what I have seen has chilled my very soul. It behooves us Sammies to watch our steps and keep our hands on our guns, she added after an interval of reflection. I think our passenger is approaching. Mrs. Chadsey Smythe, clad in a suit of tight-fitting khaki, which accentuated her stoutness, was walking stiffly down the path from the cottage, followed by two welfare workers, discreetly keeping to the rear of their superior. The face of the meatpacker's wife wore an expression of austerity which Grace told herself had been borrowed from some high army officer, an officer with a grouch of several years' standing. Mrs. Smythe halted, eyeing first the car itself, then the two young women on the front seat, both of whom were gazing stolidly ahead. "'Are you the chauffeur?' she demanded, addressing Grace. "'I am Mrs. Grace Gray, madame. I am driving this car through,' replied Grace courteously. "'A car, did you say?' "'No, this is not a car. It is a truck, and a very dirty truck.' I venture to say that it has not been washed in some time, observed the welfare supervisor sarcastically. Quite probable, Mrs. Smythe. This is wartime, you know. That is not an excuse. The war is ended. Hereafter you will see that the car is clean when you start out in the morning. Yes, madame. Another thing, driver. I do not brook impertinence from my subordinates. "'no matter how slack this department may have been carried on in the past. "'Henceforth, military form must be observed.' "'Yes, madame,' replied Grace meekly. "'If proper for a superior to do so, "'I would ask if it is customary for a private to remain seated "'when such superior approaches to speak to the private. "'When driving, yes. "'It is not. "'Hereafter, Driver, when a superior officer comes up to you, you will step down, hold the car door open and stand at salute, if you know how to salute, until the officer is seated. Am I clear? Perfectly so, madame. Grace repressed a hot retort, and Elfrida's face burned with indignation. She found herself wondering how her companion could keep her self-control under the insulting tone of the welfare supervisor. It is quite apparent, driver, that you are new to the army and its ways. Oh! exclaimed J. Elfrida. What is that? demanded Mrs. Smythe. I... I think I pinched my finger in the door, stammered Elfrida. Driver, step down. There is nothing like making a right start. Without an instant's hesitation, Grace sprang out, grasped the door of the car, and standing very erect, held it until Mrs. Smythe and her two aides had entered and taken their seats. 
Grace Harlow closed the door, clicked her heels together and gave her superior a snappy salute that even a freshly made second lieutenant could not have improved on. Oh, you can at least salute, I see, observed the passenger. I sincerely hope, however, that you are a better driver than you are a soldier. I wish a fast driver, but not a careless one. If you are afraid to drive fast, I will request the colonel to give me a driver who is not. Yes, madame. There was mischief in the eyes of Grace Harlow as she climbed into the driver's seat. An expression that J. Elfrida understood full well was a sure forecast of trouble to come. The road was greatly congested, and for a time the driver worked her way cautiously along at a rate of speed of not more than ten miles per hour. "'Faster! Are you too timid to drive?' cried the passenger. At this juncture an opening presented itself, a narrow space between two army trucks, and an officer's car tearing along behind her at a terrific pace was reaching for the opening. Grace opened up and hurled her car at the opening as if it were a projectile on its way to the enemy lines. The two cars touched hubs. Grace fed a little more gas and went into the opening a winner. Stop it, shouted Mrs. Chadsey Smythe. Ahead there were open spots and Grace made for them, dodging, swerving, the car careening, the horn sounding, until the drivers ahead, thinking a staff officer was coming, made all the room they could for the charging army automobile. Madame was expostulating, threatening, jouncing about, until speech became an unintelligible stutter. Reaching a clear stretch of road, by clever manipulation, Grace sent the car into a series of skids that would have excited the envy of a fighting aviator. That it did not turn over was because there was no obstruction in the road to catch the tyres and send the car hurtling into the ditch. "'For the love of heaven, stop it, Grace Harlow,' gasped Miss Briggs. "'I'm on the verge of nervous prostration.' You'll have us all in the hospital or worse. Grace grinned but made no reply. She straightened up a little as the officer's car finally shot past her and it was then that she saw she had been racing with a general though she did not know who the general might be. She hoped he did not know who it was that cut him off but of course he could not expect her to look behind her when driving in that tangle of traffic. That was good logic, so she devoted her attention and thought wholly to the work in hand, and, putting on more speed, rapidly drew up on the charging automobile ahead, reasoning that the general would have a fairly clear road, which road would be hers provided she were able to keep up with him. Ahead of them, a short distance, she espied a concrete bridge. There was a concrete barrier on either side of the bridge, but the bridge was amply wide to permit two vehicles to pass. The general's car took the bridge at high speed, army trucks drawing to their right so as to leave him plenty of room. Grace followed, driving at the bridge at top speed, but when within a few yards of the structure a truck driver swayed over past the centre of the span, evidently not having heard her horn. The girl thought she could still go through, but discovered too late that the truck was too far over to permit her passing. 
The emergency brakes went on and the horn shrieked, but too late. The truck driver, losing his head, swung further to the left instead of to the right as he should have done, thus crowding Grace further over toward the concrete wall railing. Hold fast, shouted Grace. Ere the passengers could hold fast, the car met the end of the concrete railing head-on with a mighty crash. The rear of the car shot up into the air and the passengers were hurled over the dash. They cleared the obstruction and went hurtling into the river, disappearing beneath its surface. The car lurched sideways until half its length hung over, threatening any moment to slip down after them into the stream. Harlow luck had not improved. This time Grace had overreached the mark. Those readers who have followed Grace through the eventful years from her exciting days in the Oakdale High School have learned to love her for her gentle qualities and to admire her for her pluck and achievements, for the sterling qualities that from her early school days drew to her so many loyal friends. It was in Grace Harlow's plebe year at high school that the readers of this series first became acquainted with her. They followed her through her high school course, as told in Grace Harlow's sophomore year at high school, Grace Harlow's junior year at high school, and Grace Harlow's senior year at high school, in which those dear friends of her girlhood days, Nora O'Malley, Anne Pearson and Jessica Bright, the original four, shared her joys and sorrows. After high school came college, Grace and Anne going to Overton, Nora and Jessica choosing for their further education an Eastern Conservatory of Music. At Overton, new friends rallied to Grace's colours, such as Elfrida Briggs, Arlene Thayer, Emma Dean, Mabel Ash, and many others. Four eventful years were spent at Old Overton, the experiences of those college years being related in Grace Harlow's first year at Overton College, Grace Harlow's second year at Overton College, Grace Harlow's third year at Overton College and Grace Harlow's fourth year at Overton College. Followed by Grace Harlow's return to Overton campus and Grace Harlow's problem. The story of the fruition of the Overton girls' dreams is told in Grace Harlow's Golden Summer, when she became the bride of her lifelong friend and chum, Tom Gray, and went to Haven Home a happy wife. Grace's home life was a brief one, for the Great World War enveloped the big white house behind the world, as she had so happily characterised it. First time Tom Gray went away to serve his country in its hour of need, then Grace followed him as a member of the Overton unit, and in Grace Harlow Overseas is related the story of how she became involved in the plots of the old world nearly to her own undoing. In Grace Harlow with the Red Cross in France, she is assigned to drive an ambulance at the front, which she had long yearned to do and out there in the thick of the fighting she is called upon to face death in many forms. It is, however, in a following volume. 
Grace Harlow with the Marines at Chateau Thierry, however, that the Overton girl meets with hardships and perils that nearly cost her her life. Yet more thrilling even than this were her experiences as related in Grace Harlow with the U.S. Army in the Argonne, when perhaps the most desperate fighting of the war occurred. Grace Harlow with the Yankee shock boys at St. Quentin finds Grace an active participant in that most brilliant single achievement of the war, the breaking of the Hindenburg Line, in which, by sheer pluck and daring, she saves an entire regiment from certain annihilation and wins a decoration for her heroism. Following the signing of the armistice, the march of the American troops toward the Rhine began. With them went Grace Harlow and her faithful friend J. Elfrida Briggs. Anne Nesbitt, having been left behind to continue her work in a hospital. Just how it had come about that Grace and Elfrida were to accompany the troops, neither girl knew. The assignment brought joy to both girls, and especially to Grace, for when the sound of the big guns died away and an unnatural stillness settled over war-torn Europe, she felt ill at ease, felt as if there was something lacking, though down deep in her heart was a thankfulness that overbalanced the regret that the excitement of months in the war zone was a thing of the past. She was first thankful for the soldiers, then for her husband, Tom Gray, who was also on his way to the Rhine, and for the little Yvonne, now their daughter, the child whom Grace had picked up as a waif in a deserted French village under fire. Grace, at her own request, was permitted to drive through with her friend in an army car. The first day she carried, besides herself, supplies for canteen work, for both she and Alfreda Briggs were now welfare workers. It had been understood that Mrs Smythe was to go with the invading army, but that she would take an active part in directing the work neither girl considered probable, for, as a rule, such workers left the actual directing to some person of experience. Not so with Mrs Chadsey Smythe. She proposed to be a working head, and she was. At least she had been an active participant on the march to the Rhine since she came up with Grace Harlow. Her real troubles began with the starting of the car, with Grace at the wheel, and the troubles continued without a second's intermission right up to and including that fatal second when Grace collided with the bridge rail and Mrs Chadsey, together with the other occupants of the car, took an unexpected dive into the river. Fortunately for the five women in the car, the machine had remained on the road, else it might have fallen on them and finished them entirely. Grace came up to the surface first, shook the water from her eyes and then dived and brought up one of the welfare workers who had accompanied Mrs Chadsey. The other woman and Alfreda came up of their own accord and Grace quickly went in search of Mrs Chadsey. "'There she is,' gasped Alfreda, pointing downstream where the welfare supervisor was seen floundering, fighting desperately to get to shore, not realising that the water at that point was shallow enough to permit her to stand and keep her chin above water. Grace swam to her quickly and grasped the supervisor by the hair of her head, just as Mrs Chadsey, giving up, had gone under. 
Even though the water there was only about five feet deep, Grace had never come nearer to drowning, for not only did Mrs. Chadsey grip her with both arms, but fought desperately when Grace got her head above the water. "'Stop it!' gasped Grace, struggling to free herself from the grip of those really strong arms. "'You'll drown us both!' "'Let me go!' screamed the supervisor, fastening a hand in the Overton girl's hair. One of Grace's hands being thus freed, she took a firm grip in the hair of her opponent, pushed her head under the water, and both sank out of sight. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ashley Jane